Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Almighty God, our gracious and holy Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we reflect on this issue of whom we should believe and who has authority in our church, that you give us wisdom as we think through history's attempts to answer this question. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the jobs you get as a dad of multiple children is this. Uh, Referee. You keep getting called in to referee disputes, to sort out arguments, to fix up people's fights. Now, it's something I find very difficult to do. In fact, you often need the wisdom of Solomon because one child will tell you one story, another child will tell you a completely different story and any witnesses will tell you another story again. My problem is this. My children are very convincing. I don't know whom to believe. I don't know who's telling me the facts. I don't know who's giving me the right story, the authoritative truth, so I don't know what to do. Now, as my children will tell you, what I do is I send everyone to bed. Um, Antagonists, victims, witnesses, anyone else within earshot, any visitors who happen to be over at the time, they all get sent to bed. Too difficult for me to decide. I don't know whom to believe. I punish everyone. (laughs) Works for me. And it has the added benefit that I'm called on less and less to referee disputes. Uh, My kids have worked out that I just make things worse. It's better for them to try to sort it out without me. Good for them. Good parenting, in my judgment. Uh, This issue of whom to believe, it's not just a problem for dads. Over the centuries, it's also proved to be a problem in the church. Over the centuries, as we've seen in these last few weeks, there have been all kinds of debates, all kinds of arguments and questions. People people disagree about stuff. They don't know what the correct answer is. False teachers have risen up and taught wrong stuff. And the question is, how do you know who to believe? Who has the authoritative truth? Who has the right to tell us as a church and as Christians what we should believe and how we should live? Over Over the centuries... Over the centuries, there have been a few attempts to answer the question. One of the early attempts was to locate authority in a person. You have a person who has authority over the church. Now, according to this school of thought, the idea goes back to Jesus himself. Jesus had authority over the church, and Jesus gave his authority to his friend Peter. People who hold to this view... Uh, They use the first passage that we read this evening, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I'll put it there on your outline. Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock, Peter means rock, on this rock, I will build my church. He he gives Peter the keys to to heaven. Uh, Jesus appoints Peter as the rock on which the church is built. He gives him authority. And so the theory goes, Peter's authority is then transferred from person to person. And that person who has Peter's authority is the boss of the church. Now, tradition has it that the Apostle Peter visited Rome and died there. And right from the early days, Rome was a very significant city and there were some very significant church leaders in Rome, including especially late in the first century ago by the name of Clement. And then over the centuries, as there were disputes in the church, some people looked to Rome for answers. For example, 189 AD, there was a bloke called Irenaeus, and he wrote this, I'll put it on your outline. Uh, With that church, that is the Roman church, with that church, because of its superior origin, all the churches must agree. 
Because it is in her that the faithful everywhere have maintained the apostolic tradition. So there's this idea of Rome as having some supremacy. And then in the 200s, there was a bloke by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian was dealing with a whole heap of different false teachings. And part of his strategy to show what true teaching is, is he said you need to be able to show what he called apostolic succession. That is, authoritative leaders, they should be able to trace their lineage back to the apostles. Tertullian, for example, he argued that the apostle John had been succeeded in Smyrna by a man called Polycarp, passed on his apostolic authority to him. And in Rome, he argued that Peter had been succeeded by Clement. Uh, Tertullian was actually the first bloke to use the word Pope, that is Pontifex Maximus in Latin, which means supreme priest. He actually used it as a sarcastic rebuke to the uh, current Roman bishop, Calixtus I, because Calixtus was trying to say that he was the most important, and Tertullius called him as a bit of a sarcastic joke, Pontifex Maximus. Uh, But by 256 AD, people were starting to take the bishops in Rome very, very seriously. Uh, 256 AD, uh, there was a, a, a bishop in Rome called Stephen, and he claimed to be the greatest authority in the church. He claimed to be the boss of a church council in Carthage. Many people didn't believe him, but that was the claim. But then over the next century, particularly with the conversion of Emperor Constantine, remember we talked about him in the Donatist dispute when the Emperor Constantine was converted, with the conversion of the Emperor Constantine, the power and authority of the Bishop of Rome increased. Uh, By 325 AD, the then Bishop of Rome was considered one of three great authorities in the church. And in the councils that we've been talking about, so do you remember some of the councils, Nicaea, Constantinople, so on, as they passed uh, through time, the Roman bishops increased and increased in authority within the councils. So much so that by 451, in the Council of Chalcedon, uh, this supremacy became very clear. Pope Leo I argued that he was the head of the church, and the council declared, this is the same council you remember that Warren talked about last week, one of those councils that declared who Jesus is, That same council declared that Pope Leo is, and I quote, the interpreter to all of the voice of Peter. And he has been the guide of the council. So increasing authority in this Pope, Roman bishop. Now in the Western church, there actually wasn't all that much argument about it. Rome was really central, but there was plenty of argument about it in the Eastern church. They argued that the Patriarch of Constantinople had just as much right to be head of the church as the Bishop of Rome. They argued and argued and argued about it, in fact, until things got so intolerable that on Saturday, July the 16th, 1054, the Pope, another Pope Leo, Leo IX, and the Patriarch, Michael Keriularius, they had a big fight and they excommunicated each other. And that led to the biggest split in the history of the church. 1054, the biggest split in the history of the church, the split between the Eastern, what we now call the Orthodox churches, you know, like Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, that kind of thing, and the Western church, what has become the Catholic and Protestant churches. Now, once the Eastern churches were out of the way, the popes in Rome were free to claim even more power. In fact, by the early 1200s, Pope Innocent III claimed not only to be the head of the church, he claimed to be the head of the world, the head of all governments as well. He had a big army, He launched crusades and he had military victories over kings in England and France as well as Italy. And this power over church and state continued until early in the 1300s. Around that time, 
Pope Boniface VIII, wrote a declaration of doctrine. And he declared that in order for anyone to be saved, they have to be subject to the Roman Pope. No salvation unless you're subject to the Roman Pope. Now, unfortunately for Boniface, he didn't have a big army to back up his claim. So Philip, the king of France, defeated him in battle. And what Philip did to show his power, he removed the popes from Italy. And for more than 70 years, the popes lived in France, in a place called Avignon. And they were basically puppets of the French kings. Now, eventually, by popular demand, 1377, the papacy was returned to Rome. But most of the cardinals who elect the pope were still French. That led to a big debate. 1378, the cardinals wanted to elect another French pope. The Italian population wanted a, uh, an Italian pope. So they compromised and elected a Neapolitan. Uh, it's a guy from Naples. Naples was in Italy, but an ally of France. And this pope took the name Urban VI. As it turned out, Urban was in some ways a good bloke. He was committed to reforming the church, committed to eliminating corruption. He called on the cardinals and priests to live godly lives, which they didn't like at all. However, he was also, and I quote, given to violent rages, paranoia, and an inflated sense of his own authority. Urban was so abusive to the cardinals that they left Rome and went back to France. There they declared that they'd been forced to elect Urban, and so they elected another pope and set him up back in Avignon, Clement VII. So now you had two popes, one in Italy and one in France. The French pope and the Italian pope excommunicated and anathematized each other and uh, anathematized everybody's followers. So the whole of Europe was basically excommunicated and Europe was divided. The Italians, along with some others, supported the Roman pope, the French and the Spanish and some others supported the French pope, Clement. And that's the way it stayed for nearly 40 years. The French kept, kept electing their popes. The Italians kept electing their popes. Everyone had excommunicated each other. And suddenly the whole concept that you could have one bloke who's the ruler and final authority in the church becomes a big question mark. How do you know which one? Okay, let's leave the popes there for a while. Let me tell you about a second way of thinking about authority in the church. This way of thinking, again, it goes all the way back to the Bible, to Acts chapter 15, our second reading. Acts chapter 15, as we saw... Some of the Jewish Christians are arguing that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, have to become Jewish if they're going to be proper Christians. They have to get circumcised, obey the Jewish law. There's a big fight about it. What does the church do? Do they ask Peter, the Pope? No. No. What they do, they gather all the leaders together in a big meeting. What's become known as the Jerusalem Council. The leaders discuss matters together, they check out what the scripture says, and they make a decision. And their decision is meant to be binding, meant to have authority over the church. In early church history, this was often the way that debates were decided. In fact, all of the issues that we've covered, Trinity, Donatism, Jesus, all of these issues were the subject of church councils. Throughout the early history of the church, councils were used to make authoritative determinations in the church. Now, from 500 to 1300 AD, with the increasing power of the Pope, councils became less and less influential. Also with the split between East and West, councils become less and less influential. But as we come into the 1300s, with this crisis in the papacy, where you've got one French Pope and one Italian Pope, 
the idea of let's get a council and sort this out starts to come back again. So 1393, scholars from the University of Paris suggested that if the schism between the two popes couldn't be resolved, there should be a council to resolve it. So in 1409, that's what happened. Cardinals from the French and the Italian parties joined together in a council in Pisa. They deposed both the popes and they elected a new pope, Alexander V. Unfortunately, neither of the two existing popes recognised the status of the council, so now there were three popes running around the place. Uh, Alexander didn't last long, just a year or so, 1410, he died. And uh, the, um, the council, in its wisdom, decided to elect a former pirate as pope, a guy who took the name John XXIII. Uh, there was a war about it, it was a complete disaster, and John was forced to call another council, the Council of Constance. Uh, Con the Council of Constance was one of the biggest councils in church history. There were 12,460 people in attendance, including two popes, 33 cardinals, 47 archbishops, and 145 bishops. Uh, sponsored by the emperor, this council deposed all three of the popes and appointed a new pope, Martin V. Uh, fortunately, two of the three popes resigned. They agreed. The third pope didn't agree, but nobody supported him, so he holed himself up in a castle in Spain and excommunicated everyone and cursed everyone until he died in 1423, but nobody was listening by then. Uh, the Council of Constance had healed the papal crisis. And having healed the papal crisis, what they then did is tried to assert their own authority over the church. They issued a decree saying that the whole church, including popes, should obey the decisions of councils. And they issued another decree saying that councils should meet regularly to tell everybody what to believe. But it didn't last very long. Now that the Pope had power again and got his army back, he kept dissolving every council meeting. And in 1460, Pope Pius II issued a new edict. He said that any council that disagrees with the Pope is wrong and all its members will go to hell. Okay. What do you reckon? Where's the authority? With the popes? With the councils? Well, let's leave the popes and the councils there for a while and let's think about a third candidate for authority in the church. Uh, right through church history, you can find examples of people who insisted that ultimate authority wasn't with popes or councils. They insisted that popes or councils or anybody else who claimed any authority they could only have authority insofar as they accurately were represented and taught what the Bible says. Now, these people insisted that it is the Bible that is the authority. Now, I reckon you can trace this way of thinking all the way back to Jesus himself again. When Jesus had a controversy with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Has not God said to you? And quoting scripture. He argued from the Bible as the authority. That's interesting for those People who want to claim Peter as the infallible authority and pope. Did you notice in the first reading, straight after Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter says something stupid, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of men, but the things of God. Or, or there's the story in, in Galatians chapter 2, I've put on your outline, where, where Paul says to Peter, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. So much for an infallible start to the papacy. But you also see it, if you look carefully in the church council in Acts chapter 15, 
don't know if you noticed this when we read it before, but in Acts chapter 15, verse 15, James confirms what they're saying in the council from Scripture. Of course, the Bible itself claims to be authoritative, doesn't it? Jesus said that he would give his spirit to the apostles so that they would teach what is true. And the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, the words of Scripture are breathed out by God. They tell us with authority what we need to know to put our trust in Jesus and be saved. They tell us with authority everything we need to know to live lives pleasing to God. Now, in terms of church history, there have always been people who have held to this view. I reckon if you look back at that quote from Irenaeus there in 189 AD, you can see it there. He's not talking about a person. He's saying, no, 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 the Roman church is in conformity with apostolic tradition. They're saying at the time what the Bible says. And there are lots of blokes, lots of people right through church history who've held to this kind of view. Let me tell you about some famous stories. There's a story of Athanasius in the 300s. He was one of the heroes in the Trinitarian dispute. Now, during the course of the Trinitarian dispute, there there were popes and there were councils who agreed with the guy we were talking about, the guy Arius, who said that Jesus wasn't God. There were councils that declared that Jesus is not God. There were popes who declared that Jesus is not God. But Athanasius just said, I don't care what popes say. I don't care what councils say. The Bible says that Jesus is God and I'm going to stick with that. And they exiled him time and time again. I think he was exiled something like 12 times. He was tortured. He was persecuted. He was attacked until finally... Finally, he was vindicated. You see it in the work of people like John Chrysostom in the 300s. He keeps on preaching what the Bible says. He famously says that the road to hell is paved with the skulls of priests. Don't listen to priests. He says, listen to the Bible. In the church councils in those early centuries, there were lots of people who were arguing from Scripture as the authority. Their desire was that councils reflect what God says in his word. Later on, Around about the time where they're arguing between the popes and the, and the councillors in the 1300s, you get people like John Wycliffe. 1379, John Wycliffe wrote that Christ and not the Pope is the head of the church. He said the Bible is the sole authority for the believer. And so he translated the Bible to make it available for ordinary Christians so they could test for themselves what church authorities said. For his troubles, Wycliffe was condemned by the church. But he wasn't alone. Uh, John Hus in Bohemia claimed that the Bible was the authority. He was invited to a church council. They gave him safe passage, but they lied. They ambushed him and burned him at the stake in 1415. In Florence, a man called Savonarola argued that the Pope should have to obey what the Bible says. Who would have thought? Uh, The Pope of the day, Alexander VI, was an openly immoral man. He had a whole heap of mistresses who used to basically live with him, and all of the sons of his mistresses he made bishops in his church. Savonarola challenged the Pope and the Pope executed him in Florence in 1498. Uh, But then came the year 1517, 500 years ago next year, 1517, where a monk called Martin Luther wrote his famous 95 theses and nailed them to a church door in Wittenberg. Luther studied the Bible and he kept on teaching what it said, even though as he taught what it said, it became more and more clear that what the Bible said contradicted what the Pope and the authorities of the church were saying. He kept on teaching what the Bible said. Eventually, 1521, he was called before a council as well, what was called the Diet of Worms. Uh, He was ordered to, to take back all his teachings, but he said, no way. He said, I will not change my mind unless you can show me from the Bible why I am wrong. He's famously reputed to have said, here I stand, I can do no other. 
Now, politically, at the time, Luther was under the protection of a powerful German prince, so the church couldn't just murder him like they did everybody else. And so began what we know now as the Protestant Reformation, the second great split in church history. The Reformation is a movement that insists that the Bible is the place where we look to find truth and authority in the church. Popes, councils, any other people who claim to have authority, they must subject themselves to the Bible. Now, I should say this is a live issue today. This is not an ancient debate. This is a debate today. In the centuries since the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church has specifically opposed this view. They say that the Pope has at least equal authority with the Bible. For example, on your outline there, I've given you the current catechism. catechism. The, the current teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, it says this. And you outline there, the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Don't tell me there's no difference. Okay, can you see these three claims to authority in the church? Popes, councils, and the Bible. So who do we believe? Where do we find the truth? Friends, when my kids are fighting, I struggle to know whom to believe. But I don't reckon this is anywhere near as difficult a choice. Do you? You've got... Popes, just even this little potted history will tell you that it is easy to point to corrupt, lying popes. They've got it wrong time and time and time again. It's easy to point to church councils that have made mistakes over and over and over again. But God's word, given to us by the original apostles who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, given to us by the prophets of the Old Testament whom Jesus himself acknowledged, God's word stands firm. I've had the great privilege of spending the last 22 years full-time studying the Bible, and at this point I am more convinced than ever that it is God's true and infallible word. I'm happy to listen to Christian teachers, happy to read Christian books, happy to listen to church councils. We've just been teaching about them for five weeks. Happy even to listen to the Pope if he's got something worthwhile to say. I've signed off that I fundamentally agree with the Westminster Confession. That's the result of a, a church council. But friends, any teacher, any council, if they say what is contrary to the Bible... They're wrong. They're wrong. That is certainly the view of our own denomination. The Presbyterian Church of Australia in its constitution says this. The supreme standard of the church is the word of God contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and which this church regards as the only rule of faith and practice. Okay. What's the application of all this? Well, for a start, we're going to stop our topical series. Uh, I hope you found it helpful. Uh, But next week, we get back to doing what we always do, week after week after week, just working through books of the Bible from beginning to end. Uh, We're going to start the book of Jude next week, and then uh, the book of Joshua will take us out to the end of the year. We will let God speak to us his authoritative word as we read and try to understand and try to apply the Bible. We'll seek to submit ourselves to God's authority expressed in his word. I mean, more seriously, though, let me give you a couple of applications. 
of this view of church authority. First application, uh, you want to, if you want to believe that the Bible is the authority in the church, you've got to get used to the idea that church is going to be a mess. See, the thing about fascists and tyrants is they make trains run on time. The thing about fascists and tyrants is they make everybody do the same thing and it looks unified. If you've got a pope or a council that can command everyone how to do church, it'll look like we're all unified. But the moment you say to people, no, 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 God's word is the authority and you must, in your own good conscience, do what you believe God's word is saying, then you've got to give people the freedom to split and divide and, and that's the history of Protestantism, isn't it? Just division after division after division and, 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 and um, denomination after denomination after denomination. And there's, there's something sad about that, but there's also something good and right about it. I'd rather have the freedom in good conscience to do what I believe the scripture is saying rather than have some forced unity imposed on me by some fascist who will be definitely corrupted by the power that they have. You've got to get used to it being a mess and apparently divided. That's the first application. The second application, though, is this. Friends, do you want to know what to believe? Look to the Bible. You want to know how to live? Look to the Bible. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to meditate on it. Day by day, by yourself, with your family, keep it open in church. Check out that what Warren or I or Marty are saying, check out that is what God says in his word. Keep it open. Come to Bible study. Think about it for yourself. Keep it open. You're not in Bible study. Next week's the week to start again because we're starting this new series. Join, join a Bible study this week. Popes, councils, ministers, Christian books, they might all be helpful. They can all be helpful, but sometimes they're not. All of them need to be subject to the Bible. It is in the Bible that God has spoken his truth. The Bible is the authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you have not left us in the dark but that in your word given to us through your prophets and apostles, you have shown us what it is we need to do to be saved by trusting in Jesus and how it is that we can live as your people pleasing to you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be Bible people. And we pray that you so work in us by your spirit that we understand rightly what scripture says and work hard to apply it in our lives, that we may understand your grace and that we may respond rightly to it. Father, we... Uh, Thank you so much for your word. And we pray that you help us to be people who love it, who read it, who listen to it. We pray in Jesus' name.